that took exactly one minute and 45 seconds. So, uh, yeah, 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 thank you, thank you. I was trying to monitor my time there, you know. Um, as we get started today, I want to just ask you a question, which is how much do you know about Vikings? Way more than shit. Me too, bro. I ain't going to lie. That's really true. If I'm like, Some of y'all may know this about me. I've shared this with y'all before. Um, I'm not sure. Some of y'all have, like, taken it upon yourself. Some of y'all being, like, three or four of y'all and my mother uh, to be, like, I'm pretty sure you have, like, ADHD. I'm not. I'm, I'm not. I've decided I'm going to stop claiming. I'm going to start claiming the opposite of that in the name of Jesus. But um, I, all I do know is that I do have a, what I, when I talk to y'all that have been diagnosed with ADHD, I got to say, I really look at y'all, and I'm like, dog, these are my people. Dude. I got to say, this is my tribe, because y'all, y'all end up being like, yeah, I see you up there being like, you can't control your impulses. You want to say some random thing, and y'all have seen me say some random side notes up here a lot, and I've gotten feedback from primarily my dad to be like, you should stop doing that. Like, that's, sometimes it can be embarrassing. Not embarrassing, it can be, like, distracting, and I'm like, if I could, fam, I would. I got to tell you, it, it takes an overwhelming amount of energy for me to not say those impulsive, just little, like, side notes. And then I talked to some of y'all, again, bearing the, uh, bearing the diagnosis of, of ADHD. And you're like, yeah, man, there are times where I just go down a rabbit hole and I just can't stop. And let me tell you, I have never related to anyone or anything more than when y'all have told me. There are times where I just get a subject, I get fascinated by it, and I just go down a rabbit hole and I just can't stop. If that's you, man, I want you to know I relate to you. I love you so much. I'm so excited that we're friends. Because uh, the other day, I just happened to watch like three episodes. I ain't going to lie. Like seven episodes uh, of this show called Vikings. It's not a massively popular show. It's not like it made the biggest cultural impact in the world. But it sparked my curiosity like crazy. So as I usually do, I started from Vikings, which is marginally historically accurate. Not... Not too much, let's be real. Uh, and then I just gradually started making my way to like YouTube video, right? Short article, full-blown article observing X, Y, and Z aspects of their culture written by some Yale professor. I'm like, okay, I feel pretty convinced now. I'm pretty informed. Now I'm gonna watch the show and be like, that's not accurate, which is like the joy of my life to do for some reason. Um, in the midst of this though, I gotta say one thing that they did paint relatively accurately though, was this sort of like incredible, not incredible. It's incredible in the sense that it's rather like awe-inspiring, but in a negative way, of like this honor culture that they had in this Viking, like the medieval Viking era. That there was, you know, in the time you got to remember that the gospel had not gotten to this part of the world. And as a result, they didn't have this vision of like the last being first and, and those that are oppressed and marginalized being really like people that you want to look after and protect. They lived in a world where they believed in gods that honored, like a like plurality of various gods that honored those who were strong and whose blessings was really revealed through the one who had the most power. And as a result, everybody was trying to get power. Everybody thought that if they were blessed, it meant that they were powerful, influential. And this led to a really high value on this idea of honor. And it led to this really high turnaround of kings and and magistrates and governors, because people would be like, you took my governorship, I'm gonna kill you. It's like, everybody's wanting to kill each other, like all the time, for anything. And the thing was, is that it created this environment where if you look at certain stretches of the timeline of their power structures, there's this incredibly high turnaround of, of things like kings and governors, real high turnaround. Because there would always be this sort of like, well, I'm gonna take I want to be a governor. I want to be powerful. I want to be a king, so I'm going to take it from so-and-so. But then so-and-so's descendant or so-and-so's slave or just so-and-so's, even just the someone that was living on their piece of property was like, you know what? I want vengeance. I'm going to take it back. And then they would just go take it back and X, Y, and Z. And it, it would create this incredible turnaround of just people usurping authority and staging a coup over and over again. You're probably like, what is this dude talking about right now? I don't know. No, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> what, what, what I am talking about is the fact that it's, as I was reading it, and maybe as you're hearing it, it sounds like a world that's like so far away. Like it's so detached from us. We don't live in a world where we have like, we have governors, but we don't have kings, and at least we don't have kings or queens. We don't have these power structures where we can pretty much just like pick up a gun or a knife and be like, I'm gonna go get my power. Also, we live in a world where that idea is not always seen as the most valuable. It's not like we hold, walk around being like, power is what I'm absolutely hungry for. Some of us, but not all of us. 
So it feels so detached to watch that show. It feels even more detached when you start reading and learning about it. And, and that's kind of where I was for a couple of days. However, the more I kept thinking about it, the more I realized that, like, I don't think I'm really that far removed from that. I live in a different culture. I don't pick up swords and particularly axes. The axes in the accounts <laughs> sounded quite gruesome. Um, I don't do that to, to try and find what I'm looking for, but, but I do feel a lot of the same things. You see the Vikings in their situation, whatever the situation was, uh, they oftentimes felt like they wanted justice. They desired justice. What does it mean to desire justice? It means that you feel like something or someone has done you wrong and you want that to be made right. How many of us oftentimes feel that way? How many of us feel like that? Probably pretty often. To be honest, we live in a world that's really commoditized, let feel like, like that feeling. Like often our culture wants us to feel that more and more. We have a culture where you have like, everybody wants to be offended by something oftentimes. And so oftentimes a lot of us feel like we want justice quite often. And here's the thing, when we feel injustice, it's because all the same things that I just mentioned are true. Something has happened to us, we want something done about it, but the feeling of injustice is that we don't feel like anything's being done about it. That's what that is. That's the whole feeling wrapped up in just a few ideas. Something wrong has happened to me. I want it made right, but nothing's happening. That's feeling injustice. And here's the thing. No matter if you're a Viking from the medieval era, if you're a 21st century Austinite, when that feeling goes on long enough, the reality is we oftentimes do take it into our hands. For the Vikings, they picked up axes, shields, and swords. For us, Maybe in, in kind of maybe the most positive lights, we do things like march, boycott, these type of things. But, but one unique thing that the Christian does is that when we feel injustice, oftentimes we turn to God and we say, something's not right. You're not right. And we complain to God. And that's the motivation for complaining to God 95% of the time. It's feeling like something's been done to me. I want it made right. I feel like nothing has happened, and we take matters into our own hands, maybe in extreme ways, like hurting someone emotionally, in the most extreme ways, hurting something, hurting someone physically, uh, but, but at kind of minimal levels for Christians, we oftentimes do find ourselves vocalizing displeasure toward God. Uh, as we conclude today in, in Malachi, we're going to take a second to explore God's response to that, because that's kind of one of the themes that was going on in this book is the feeling of injustice, whether right or wrong. And really this feeling and this response of saying, who are you? Something's not right here. I think the thing that's not right here is you. And then we're gonna take a look at how God responds to that. And I think it may surprise you how he actually does. And so what I wanna do is, is kind of laying that foundation for us. I want us to read Malachi chapter three, the first five verses of it. And uh, we are stopping here in Malachi because we're going to move on to a different book of the Bible. It's not because we are wanting to avoid the rest of the book, but rather, like I said to some folks earlier, if you wanted to, you could go a whole year in Malachi, just like one verse at a time. We have some other things to cover this year, uh, but I encourage you, if you have questions about Malachi or want to explore it more, take time to do that amongst yourselves with friends, with others, or just ask me. I'd love to have a conversation about it with you, but this is where we're going to end, because thinking actually this verse encapsulates a lot of God's response to us in general when we're struggling, when we're sinning, when we're in sin, and also, I mean, to be honest, when we're frustrated. So this is actually, I think, a good stopping place for us. However, I want us to read this together. If you would, in reverence to God's word, if you would stand with us, just in, in respect, because out of these words that a lot of us believe are, are holy and given to us by God, at the end of this, I'm going to simply say, this is the word of the Lord. I'm going to invite you to say, to respond with, thanks be to God, if you would like to, and then you can have a seat. But Malachi 3, 1 through 5 says this, See, I am going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me. Then the Lord you seek will suddenly come to his temple, the messenger of the covenant you delight in. You see, uh, see he is coming, says the Lord of armies. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who will be able to stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire, like a launderer's bleach. He will be like a refiner and, the pure, and purifier of silver. 
He will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. Then they will present offerings to the Lord in righteousness. And the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will please the Lord as in the days of old and years gone by. I will come to you in judgment. I will be ready to witness against sorcerers and adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker, the widow, and the fatherless, and against those who deny justice to the resident alien. They do not fear me, says the Lord of armies. This is the word of the Lord. Also, shout out to Meredith who put a box of tissues up here. It's already being utilized. So, what is, uh, what's happening here? What's going on? Well, the first thing that I think we can already understand is that remember that this is not just a simply like in people in hard times going through it. There's some sinful actions going on behind the scenes here. What we've learned so far from the context of Malachi is that the worship and the practice of worship is, is really gone. It's, there's a lot of mistakes and missteps happening here. Likewise, one of the things we've evaluated over the past three weeks has been that there is a, a, a heart that's missing from, this, from, this, from the practices of worship on the part of the Israelites. That one of the big issues God has had over the course of time is that their, their heart is no longer God. So they may be doing things that seem to be right, but their heart is far from him. However, what is God responding to here? Is he responding to that? Actually, no, he's not in some way. But, but the real response here is to a very direct question. And to get that question, we have to go to the last verse of chapter 2, which precedes the beginning of chapter 3. And in the last verse of chapter 2, this is what we see. Verse 17 starts like this. You have wearied the Lord with your words. Yet you ask, how have we wearied him? When you say everyone who does what is evil is good in the Lord's sight, and he is delighted with them. Or else, where is the God of justice? Maybe the Israelites weren't too far from the Vikings themselves, I got to say. Right? They, they feel injustice. They feel like those who do bad things, not them, but the other people, the people who have taken advantage of them, people who have hurt them, that they're somehow, some way, being blessed. And it makes them angry. And so they look and they say, hey, the God of our fathers, Yahweh, he, he blesses those that do evil. Or else, where is the God of justice? And this is where we get to really understand, right, what, what's happening here. God's not just saying these, these ideas and declaring this message for the sake of saying, hey, here's a cool thing, right? But he's responding to specific feelings, and those feelings are the feelings of injustice that we talked about earlier. And you and I, whether we know it or not, we actually relate to this. We have all felt this. But, but why does this happen? Why does this happen? And, and here's the thing. I, I don't want to, to project too much and say this is what, how it happens for everybody, but I know I've talked to people who are angry with God oftentimes, and I can tell you that sometimes there is a certain rhythm that takes place in our hearts. And I, I, I would, I'm not going to lie, I can kind of see it at work in Malachi. Oftentimes what we feel when we feel injustice and we feel anger toward God is we, we feel like something wrong has been done, feel like we want it made right, feel like nothing's taking place. But the feeling that oftentimes accompanies this bitterness or the anger that, that we sometimes get toward God is when we feel like we're vindicated and demanding something from God. I'm right to demand something from you. You're wrong to not give it to me. And that's a feeling that's oftentimes unique. That's different than feeling actual injustice. Not that you don't feel injustice, but, but rather that that feeling of anger toward God is oftentimes motivated by uh, that certain entitlement. Where does that come from? I think that's oftentimes the question we have to ask ourselves. Where does that type of entitlement come from? Uh, a couple years ago, I was thinking about this uh, with some friends. And while we were talking, one of the things I said is that it's so hard to not walk around and to be coupled, to kind of get this idea of grace that we get from Christianity and be like, I like that grace stuff. I'm going to cover that grace stuff on my end. On my end, that grace stuff covers where I take the L's. But it's oftentimes so hard to take that same idea of grace and apply it to my W. It's so hard to take it and, and transition it to the winds as well and say, by the grace of God, I've done the right thing. By the grace of God, I've, I've helped people. By the grace of God, I've loved people. 
And what ends up happening is when we don't take God's grace and apply it to both our losses and our failures and our wins and our successes, we end, up, we end up in this cycle where we take God's grace and apply it to our losses, but we take our own glory and our own sort of self-righteousness and start to build it based on our idea of our successes. So what we end up seeing in our lives is a big list of wins that earn me the right to demand something from God and a big list of losses that I can then say, but those don't count. And once we've gotten there, it's really easy to look at God and be like, how come you don't do X, Y, and Z for me? How come you don't do this for me? How come you don't do that for me? Look, I've earned it. The losses don't count. And if you take the losses, which don't count, and measure them up against the wins, I clearly am worthy of everything that I ask of you. And so we walked and we feel this entitlement. We feel an anger. We look and we go, man, haven't I earned this? Don't you owe me this? There's a sort of demanding assumption type of attitude. And honestly, if you relate to that, I want you to know so do I. That's the natural consequence of us taking God's mercy and applying it only to the bad side and then applying only ourselves to the good side. But to be honest, what's crazy is that's exactly where the Israelites find themselves. They want justice, meaning they're saying, we've done good things. We're sacrificing to you. We're doing this to you. We're doing that for you, whatever the case is. But other people are oppressing us. Other people are still hurting us. Other people are doing this. Other people are doing that. And yet they have completely neglected all of the things that God has already listed off. Your heart's far from me. You don't particularly love me. You sacrifice like kind of second-rate animals when the whole vision of this system Set aside the idea that they're killing animals. Just set aside for one second to capture the heart of what's happening here. The whole vision of the system is to display an honor and to give to me something that's valuable to you because in giving me something that's valuable, you reflect that I'm worthy of your utmost love, affection, and respect. You've completely neglected that all of that is true. And in your heart, you have vindicated yourself so where you look at me and go, why aren't you doing this? I demand this of you. And consequently, consequently if you don't do that, then you're wrong. I don't know if you relate to that, but I relate to that like crazy. <clears throat> and that's how the Israelites approach God. And then the question becomes, if that's how they approach him, how does he respond? If that's how they approach him, how does he respond? You may think if you have a vision of God as some detached judge that is just out there trying to gauge whether we've done things right or whether we've done things wrong, then, and which is kind of how we have to look at him if we sit there and go, listen, I've done all the right things. The bad things don't count. You need to give me this. That's. That's not intimate language. It oftentimes is very, like, transactional language, if you will. You would think that if that's how he works, that he would look at us and be like, oh, dude, I'm, I'm going to wipe you. Dude, I'm going to, in the words of a father, I'm going to spank you. <laughs> like, I'm going to spank you, right? I'm, I'm livid with you. But that's not how he responds. He is a father, but he's a good father, perfect father. So he doesn't respond like that at all. How he does respond, though, is in verse 1. And that's what makes verse 1 so incredibly powerful. In the midst of saying, you're not right, you're not fair, I'm entitled to this, I'm X, Y, and Z, God responds, see, I'm going to send my messenger. He will clear the way before me. Then the Lord you seek will suddenly come to his temple, the messenger of the covenant you delight in. See, he is coming, says the Lord of armies. Man, that's amazing. And if we don't know what's happening here, we don't know why it's amazing, let's stop and think about it for just a second. What's happening here? Well, God's response to the bitterness and entitlement of the Israelites is not, fam, I'm going to spank you, but rather it's, I'm going to handle it. I'm going to handle you, and I'm going to handle the situation. He responds like an incredibly good and just father. How? Why? Because what he responds with is actually like a, a pre-declaration of the good news of Jesus. What's happening here? He, he ends up saying, see, I want to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me. Uh, most people think that the reason that the Greek or Greco-Roman Christians decided to put Malachi at the end of the Old Testament is almost explicitly due to this verse alone. Because this verse alone started to tee up what was already happening or what had happened in their day. That they saw this figure of John the Baptist come and begin to say, someone's coming. God is coming. 
The Messiah is coming. Prepare your hearts. Turn from sin. That the, the path was truly cleared by John the Baptist himself. But then he says, then the Lord you seek will suddenly come to, and something incredible happens. God says in third person, his temple. And here's what's happening here. In this incredible little section, there's three characters at work. There's God the Father speaking and saying, this is how I'm going to respond. I'm going to send my messenger. There's the initial messenger who comes to clear the path. And then there is a third character who bears the name of the Lord, who's going to come to God's temple, which is also his temple. He is going to be the messenger of the covenant, and he is going to come and make things right. And all in one incredible moment, in one incredible verse, in the Old Testament, God tees up for us this vision that he will enter the story through the person of Jesus. That the injustice of the world, the injustice that we feel, the injustice that others are guilty of, everything that, that we feel in the weight of darkness, he is going to handle. Not by sending someone else to accomplish it like so many others had, but by sending a forerunner in John the Baptist and then in entering the story himself to take care of us, to care for us. And, and here's why this is particularly important, friend. That means that the vision of justice that God has is the moment that we're living in right now. I want you to hear what I'm saying. God's vision for justice is, in fact, what we're living in, at least in part right now. Where justice begins for God is where we are right now. And hear me. I know that that's challenging because a lot of us go, well, what about X, Y, and Z? What about this, this, and that? What about how this is going or how that is going? What about Gaza? And what about Israel? And what about the host of different third world countries that are currently enraged in civil wars? What about things like drug abuse and suicide? What about marginalized groups and hurting people? What about this and what about that? And to be honest, our initial response isn't much unlike the first response. It's not much unlike the Israelites in the first place going, he does, he blesses those who do injustice and evil. If not, where's the God of justice? And here's what's beautiful about that is that God continues. He's going to, instead of going, I'm going to smite you. I'm going to spank you. Instead, he actually offers us a vision of what that justice is going to look like. And then from there, it's going to invite us into what that justice looks like. Where does it start? Well, the first place he, he says, hey, here is how my justice is seen, is in his refinement. The Messiah comes. He enters into the story. He himself is the evidence that God is responding to the pain and darkness of the world. God is responding to our aching hearts because God himself enters the story. But what continues and what's amazing is, is what we see in Malachi 3 verse 2 in describing the Messiah, in describing God incarnate. It continues in verse 2, but who can endure the day of his coming? And who will be able to stand where he appears? This is, again, talking about the messianic figure, talking about Jesus. For he will be like a refiner's fire and like launderer's bleach. He will be like a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi, that's the priests or religious structures, and refine them like gold and silver. Then they will present offerings to the Lord in righteousness, addressing the exact issue that's taking place in Israel right now. The priests are off. The priests are taken else. The priests are losing. But God is going to start there. He's going to refine and purify them. Verse 4, and the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will please the Lord as in days of old, like years gone by. Like a refiner, he's going to come. Not like a destroyer, like a refiner. It's incredible that the image we have of Jesus in the New Testament is not one that violates the Old Testament. You oftentimes hear that, as though sometimes people say, there's a huge contradiction in the Bible, right? Look at the Old Testament God and look at the New Testament Jesus. But I see an incredible testimony of the New Testament Jesus right here. That in the midst of bitterness, in the midst of anger, in the midst of failure, in the midst of sinfulness, in the midst of really what is petulant childishness, God responds by going, I'm not going to destroy you, I'm going to help you. I'm going, to, I'm going to refine you. This would have been hard to hear 
understandably. Because while the Israelites were asking God to come down and smite all the sinful foreigners out there, the first place God's justice starts is with the sin in them. Not the sin out there, the sin in them. And this is something we often don't understand about God's justice. He doesn't start justice with dealing with the sin of the world for our sake. God's justice starts by dealing with the sin in us for the world's sake. He understands that I'm not going to come down and make everything right out there for your sake and leave you like a petulant child entitled to this and that. My justice starts with you. Because the best thing for your community, for your marriage, for your family, for your kids, for your parents, for your campus, for your city, for your job, is not that I go handle them and leave a sick you. It's that I start with refining you so that you can be a part of making a whole them. God's justice starts there. It starts with us. The justice that enters into the world through God, our loving Father, is not one that says, no, no, I'll protect you. Don't worry about you. I'll go handle everything else. But one that, like any good father, would come in and say, hey, I'm going to help you first. You're mine. I'm not worried about them right now. You're mine. And because you're mine, we're starting with you. You're the one we're starting with. In our modern sensibilities, I understand that this is hard to grasp a little bit. It doesn't make sense. We live in a world where the lines have been so, so like darkly drawn that you're either right or you're wrong. This is a struggle for us because honestly, we live in a culture where even our politics, think about this, our politics are so deeply divided in our world where we oftentimes see the world as you're either morally right or you're morally wrong. And if you listen to CNN, NBC, Fox News, you list them, because I ain't got a preference. I'll, I'm talking about yours right now. Whatever, your, whatever came in for your favorite, that's the one I'm talking about. They're so, the line is so deeply drawn that you have this idea where our worldview and our set of values is the right way, and their worldview and their set of values is the wrong way. And then you go to the other side, and they just believe that same thing, but inversed. There's not a, they got some good points. There's a, they holistically are wrong. There's an immorality on that side. They, and, and you take it, and you can even, like, I can use, let's, let's use some hot language, right? Let's use some, some hot words, right? They're not compassionate. They don't have, uh, they don't take care of people. The, the liberal side will often be like, they're pro-life, but only until you are born, right? Stuff like that, where it's like, oh, that, that group, their whole structure is immoral. And then you get to the other side, and they're like, they don't care about life in the womb. They are this. They are, the other side is like, oh, they don't. They don't have any value for social systems and family structures that help us out. There's just this vision that the other side's immoral and I'm right. And so to understand that when God enters a story and says, ain't no right party, I am the right party. But the right party, one of the wrong parties is my child. And as a result, I'm starting with mine. That's the one I'm starting with because I love him, I love her. It's so hard for us to grasp because we think that there's only a wrong side and a right side. And holistically in our world, we believe that we're the right side. But when God enters a story, he don't see a right side and a wrong side. He sees a holy side and an unholy side. And where he begins in his refinement is with you because you're his. And he loves you. And he knows that his refinement in your life brings the best possible outcome in your life. Getting what you want is not at all what's going to make your life whole. Becoming like him is going to make your life beautiful, though. So that's where he starts. I talked a lot about Jude last week, so I feel bad bringing him up again. But, but we're talking about fatherhood, so I got kind of stirred me to, to, to mention him. A lot of y'all know my oldest son, Jude, has outbursts, and, and we're working through that. But oftentimes when he has these outbursts, it's not for something good. He, he'll be like, like, I've had 19 cookies. We don't actually have 19. I'm just an exaggerated number. But I want one more. And then it's like, uh, brother, I got to let you know your behavior probably as a result of these cookies, is absolutely insane at the moment. It's you're running around like a crazy man. One more cookie is only going to make that worse. And the thing is, in his mind, he responds in sheer anger, in sheer frustration. And I have to eventually start letting him know, hey, brother, you're not going to get this. If you keep on saying these things to me or to your mom, I'm going to have to eventually give you a consequence. I'm going to have to start maybe like remove a privilege. I'm going to have to do this. I'm going to I'm gonna have to do, and then in his mind, he doesn't understand. He's just angry. He wants what he wants, and he naturally wants what he wants. And the thing is, for me to tell him that what he wants is not a good thing, is not the right thing, is so, like, it doesn't make sense in his mind. He's just mad. 
He's angry. What he doesn't understand, however, is that as his father, my job in that moment is not always to give him what he wants. My job is to refine him. My job is to let him know the next cookie is not going to help you, and the way you're acting about wanting something else is not going to help you. My only job in this life, as it pertains to me and you, is to make sure that you go out into this world and that you are seen as a good young man, that people don't look at you, and if they do look at you and go, man, I can't stand you, nothing is going to break my heart more than hearing that news about you. I love you. You're mine. Flesh of my flesh, bone of my bone, you are mine. And my job is not to spoil you, because in spoiling you, I'm going to send you out there, and I'm going to set you up for hardship. And what I want with all of my heart is for you to live a beautiful life, for you to live a life that honors God and makes a difference in the world that you live in. And so because of that, even though it doesn't make sense to you, even though it hurts you, I have to refine you. I have to work on you. I have to love you. It's not because I don't like you. It's not because I'm judging you. It's because I love you. It's because you're mine. That's where God starts. I'm, I'm starting with you. I'm going to refine you. That's where justice starts for me. You, my house. And so he comes in and he starts to refine us. He says, I'm going to start with the priests. I'm going to start with, and in this context, he's like, I'm starting with them. And the thing is, what we're going to do is, is not change their actions. Through my love and care, I want to change their hearts because I want their, their sacrifices now to be righteous. I want there to be an affection for me. That's what I'm bringing them back to. I'm not bringing them to changing their, their, their actions singularly, but I'm trying to work on their hearts so that through their hearts, their actions will be changed so that their sacrifices can be holy before me. That's what God's doing for you and me. He starts in the home not to make you act differently, but to refine our hearts, to draw us close to him. That's the goal. And through that change, other changes will come. But that's where he's starting. That's where justice starts. Here's the thing. That doesn't mean that God overlooks everything else. In the very next verse, check this out, we see his justice and judgment kind of working outside of the context of, of his refinement of his own house. Right? In, in Malachi 3.5, he continues I will come to you in judgment. I will be ready to witness against sorcerers and adulterers. These are largely things that were not permitted in Israel. Uh, he doesn't want the Israelites to be doing these things. He's asking them to come back to him to not do these things. But for those that are doing them outside of their community and those that are oppressing, look, against, it continues on, against those who swear falsely, that's taking advantage of others, against those who oppress hired workers and widows and the fatherless and against those who deny justice to the resident alien, those who do not fear me, right? All this idea is him acknowledging those who do not come back to me, who are actively oppressing others, whether inside our, our house or outside our house, I'm going to handle that. I'm going I'm to take care of that. After I come back in refining you, my next step is to judge and take care of everything else. My first job is refinement. My second job is judgment. So he comes down. He enters the story. His response to our feelings of injustice is to enter the story to take care of us, to bring justice. That justice doesn't start out there, though. The justice starts here. And as he progresses here, he promises that he will not let those who have done wrong and who have violated and who persist in that violation of you and the rest of his family and creation he promises they will not go unpunished. That those who do not turn and turn to him, but persist in uh, sorcery, persist in, in all these things that actively work against the way of the Lord, that he's going to handle that. He's going to handle it. I go back to the same moment with my son, if I'm being honest. Um, like when I'm talking to him, he feels this way to like, it's not fair because maybe someone else got this thing. Maybe someone else got that thing. And I got to look at him and kind of remind him, like, I'm not telling you that you can't get this thing. So, so there's often times where it's like, hey, uh, can I get the first cookie? We're not working on the 20th, we're working on the first one. And I'm like, yes. 
do this and do that. And oftentimes there will inevitably be this sort of like, but Leah got one, but this happened, but that happened. Um, and actually, sorry, let's inverse this. What's especially troubling for Leah particularly is when there's no asking for cookies at all. And she'll be like, fam, I cleaned my room. I did my homework. I was respectful. I was super chill. Y'all say you like it when I'm chill. I'm asking for a cookie. You're saying not yet. I look over. Jude ain't done nothing. He didn't even ask for one. My man is swimming in cookies. <laughs> and he ain't, he ain't get them by asking either. Like, we'll be looking over, and Jude will literally be, like, eating cookies like he's a Roman king. He's a... <laughs> and it's like, hey, how'd you get, you asked mom for that? And he's like, no. And I'm like, you asked me, did you ask me for that? Like, nope. He's like, I just got it. And Leah will be so furious. She'll be like, dude, I'm, I'm doing all this work. My daughter, my daughter is Leah, she's my oldest. Uh, she'll be like, I'm doing all this work. All for one cookie. This guy does zero work and he's swimming in cookies. What, what's the deal here? In those moments, I have to look at her and say, hey, I'm, I'm, me and you were working together. I'm gonna handle him. And that's, where, that's what she doesn't understand, right? Because the immediate instinct is like, it's, it really is Viking-esque. She's like, I'm gonna go get a cookie from him. Right, like it's, a, it's like, if you wanted to watch the Viking landscape be played out in the context of the real world, just go look at my kids, because it's incredible. Be like, I'm not getting this. This is unfair. I'm gonna go get mine from the guy that took it, right? Like, I'm, it's incredible, dude. Um, and I have to look at her and ensure her, like, hey, look at me. You're gonna get a cookie. You keep doing the right thing. I'm, I'm in it with you. You're mine. As far as he's concerned, I'm gonna handle that. You don't need to handle it, right? You made me aware of it. You drew my attention to it. You're, you're, you're working in some way to make things right, and I appreciate that. However. The overall end judgment of that boy is still on me, not on you. I'm going to handle him. You work on behalf of making things right. I get that. And I'm, I'm not mad at her for being like, hey, homeboy got three cookies. I'm not like snitches get stitches. I'm not do that. I'm going to be like, no, that's good. Want justice in the world. If you snitching in order to make a whole group of oppressed people, like being a, what's it called when you a, a bell ringer, what is it, whistleblower, praise God. We don't, the Christian faith doesn't operate on snitches get stitches if it means that the snitching leads to justice and wholeness, right? There's a value of love and protection and care. So I'm happy that she's saying like, hey, he got three, I ain't getting nothing. I'm doing all this. It's like, great, but I'm gonna handle him. I'm gonna work on that. You worry about me and you, you worry about doing the right thing. Make me aware of it, appeal to me. But at the end of the day, judgment for him lies in me. I'm gonna be the one that handles that. And so he promises, like me to my kids, I'm going to handle that. I'm going to make it right. We're working on me and you. You advocate on behalf of justice. You do the right thing. However, the end judgment for that individual is in my hands. And, man, pray God that the one who's guilty of adultery and sorcery and oppression, pray God that they return and they turn away from those things. So quick, you and I think that justice means endgame. And for God, Justice is restorative, it's not endgame. Restoration is endgame for God. That's what his will is for this world. That's what his will is for your enemy. Oftentimes when we want justice, we look and go, I hope the endgame is you killing them. I hope the endgame is you making it right, hurting them. Put a hurting on that person. But God's goal is not, hey, I hope that I get a chance to lay a hurting. It's I hope I restore them. I hope they respond to me. So let God deal with the injustice because the end game is hopefully that it will be more beautiful than you could imagine in the midst of your pain. If it's more beautiful than you could imagine in the midst of your pain, God's justice is fully on display because his grace and mercy are fully on display and praise God for that. All right, I'm, I'm coming to the end here. I need to, I need to wrap it up. So he, he, he enters the story. He responds to the injustice. He's coming to take care of us. He starts with refining us. He starts in-house. He starts with you and me. From there, he promises, man, what's unjust out there, I'm going to handle. But let me handle the justice because historically, like the Vikings, you've not displayed a good job at handling justice. Let me handle the justice, and we're going to hope that, that at the end there's a restoration of all things if they respond to my love. But, but here's where maybe at the end it, it climaxes with the verse we started with at the very beginning of the sermon. In verse 6, 
which is just outside of verse 5. I know that we didn't read it at the beginning. Psych, I'm bringing, or surprise, I'm bringing in a new one. He concludes in this beautiful way, which is a verse, again, that you heard in week one. And it's actually connected to this very idea of where are you? Who are you? Are you unjust? He says, hey, this is how I respond to, to the injustice. But then in verse 6, he concludes, because I, the Lord, have not changed, you descendants of Jacob have not been destroyed. And maybe the most beautiful vision of God's justice is in his love and his faithfulness to you and me. That the justice that he gives to you and me is the justice he desires to give to the rest of the world. That's his vision of justice in the world. To take what was broken and to make it whole. To take what was unrighteous and to make it righteous. To take what was hurting and to make it heal. Right? That's his vision. And he looks at us and says, if you want a vision of justice, if you want a vision of what it looks like, of what I'm hoping, what I'm working toward for the rest of the world, you look at how you and me interact, at the fact that you have failed over and over again. But I'm your father, and because I'm your father, and because I have not changed, I will never turn my back on. I'm, I'm never going to destroy you. I'm never going to cast you out. You're always going to be mine. You're my boy. You're my girl. Right? Treasure of my heart. And I think that this is, this is where we have, I said at the beginning of the sermon that we begin here and we end here in our faith. We, we begin in the place of God going, I have loved you and I will always love you. And we end truly in the place of, of realizing, man, God loves me. He will always love me. Because that's the beginning point from which everything else that we've read and talked about over the course of the last four weeks, that's where it all comes from. Right, whether it's him looking and being like, hey, I need you to be faithful to me. I want to restore our relationship. Whether it's him saying, hey, I'm going to bring justice to the world. I see you hurting, but I'm going to respond. I'm going to help you first, and then I'm going to deal with everything else. But I promise I'm taking care of you. It all starts in the place of understanding God is not looking at my situation as a detached or, or distant judge of, of every situation, but he's intimately involved in my life because he's my father that deeply loved me. That's the crowning jewel of God's justice. And I think that's what we really need to understand about how he treats us, is the crowning jewel of his justice in your life and in the world is that he loved the world and he loves you. We said, I think last week, the week before, that he, he created everything out of his love, that he, it was the very origin in which he, he brought everything into creation, was his love for the world. His love is one of what pours out into making things, and that's the motivating factor of everything he does. And so when me and you were looking at God, the vision that Malachi invites us into is this incredible vision of a God who is our heavenly father, who deeply loves us, who is advocating for us, who is helping us, who is guiding us, who sees us fall down, who sees us fail, picks us back up, dusts us off, makes us clean, keeps us moving. And in all of that, we're walking through life in the context of being his. That's your life now. That is who you are. You are hidden in Christ. As though no more of you can be seen, but only the sonship and purity and pleasing presence of Jesus is what God sees when he looks and approaches you. That means that through your life, this sort of ebbing and, and flowing of, of what it means to be approved by or not approved by or loved by or not loved by or worthy of love or not worthy of love in your life is not your reality anymore. You're not walking through life as one that has to earn. You're walking through life as his. And every interaction he has with you, whether it's the refining, challenging moments of your life that feel like things are being chipped away in painful measure, or whether it's the most celebratory, incredible moments of your life, they all take place within this sphere in which you are his and he is yours, your heavenly father, and you, his son, his daughter. Last week, I, I forgot to mention in my, one of my wrap-ups, it was like an application point or something like that, that in John 1, it's one of the most incredible and poetic scriptures in the Bible. Just reading on face value, you could be like, man, that's fire. But then the more you investigate it, the more you're like, wow, that's, that's powerful. And I'm not going to use any nerdy words. But the structure of John 1 is built like, like a triangle. And each verse at the end and each verse at the beginning kind of go like this, like a ladder. 
And they all build up to one verse. And that one verse is the main point of the whole poem. And if you look at it and you get really geeky, you'll see how like each one parallels an idea, but only one verse stands out as the singular point to which there is no other parallel. And every point that builds up is really powerful too. Because it's like, Jesus is God. He was around a creation. He entered the world. People rejected him, but everyone who accepted him. And then you get to the crescendo point, right? Everyone that accepted him, he gave the right to be a child of God. And this is what's powerful. He ends it by saying, not by the will of man or flesh, but by the will of God. This idea that Jesus responds that the response of God and the person of Jesus entered into the story not begrudgingly, not as though we were trying to, to, to bend his arm and be like, hey, things aren't right down here. Can you, son, can you come down and make it right? Come on, man, this isn't fair. And him being like, fine, you're right, my bad. But the whole time, the whole vision of God, the entire history was looking at you and looking at me and saying, I'm going to respond to the darkness of the world by entering into the story and making, by my will, by my desire, these individuals, my children. That God, from your very earliest days, saw you and he desired you. You were his desire. From the very beginning until you take your final breath, you will have been his desire. That from the very beginning of the world before there was a mountain or a sea or a sand or an ocean or a grass or an animal or whatever else you could have imagined, that there was a God who saw you and desired for you to be his. That's the sphere you walk in today. Not a back and forth between whether you're his or whether you're not, whether you're loved or whether you're not, or whether you're worthy or whether you're not. But that before everything was made, before there was a mother or a father, before there was a genealogy of you or anything else, God saw you and he knew that one is mine. I love him. I love her. That he has longed for you before there was anything else in the entire universe, you were the treasure of his eye then. That's why he conducts himself the way he does. That's the motivating factor for a loving and holy father. That's the love of God that we're invited to through Malachi, but that's the love of God we're invited to across the span of our life. That's how God wants you to live. That's who God's called you to be. That's what God made you for. I know that you're out there working. I know that you're at campus. I know you're trying to get good grades. I know you're trying to get a promotion. I know you're trying to do everything else. Be a father, be a mother, be a this, be a that. All the stuff that you're trying to do, I hear you. But the first job you were made for, before any of that existed, before there was a company or a family or anything else, was that you were made to be his. That you were made to be his son, his daughter. That his fatherhood was going to be your first interaction with him and what you, uh, you know, were going to be defined by from the very earliest moments of your life. That's what we're doing here. I hope that's what you're doing here. Okay? Having said that, I want to finish up with three quick application points. I'm not going to talk through them. I'm just going to list them off. If you want any information about them, you can holler at me later. Uh, man, I forgot what the first one was, to be honest with you. Uh, be reminded, that's, that checks out. Um, be reminded every day, let's move this this way. Be reminded every day that God loves you. I've been talking about that for basically 50 minutes, so let's move on. Uh, be reminded every day that God loves you. Uh, search where God desires refinement in you. I gotta say that we live in a culture where there are even like church communities where the only thing they really talk about is everything that's not happening, that's happening outside of the world. Very rarely talk about what's happening inside. Uh, and it's like we've come together in order to be justice, and yet God is desiring justice again first here. So I want to encourage you, as you like go out and start a relationship with God and want to make an impact in the world, the best place you can start is simply by seeking and searching out where God may be desiring refinement in you to bring about justice where you are. Okay, last thing. Uh, what was the last one? Search where God is calling you to protect others. I think that that's really powerful because in the actual text, God says he's coming to bring justice to those particularly who are oppressing and hurting others. And so as a result, the refinement that takes place in you is always meant to bless the people around you. It's never meant to just make you self-righteous. He doesn't refine you so that you can somehow get up and be like, dude, 
I'm so good now, you should get like me. That's the op- if that's you, that, that's not God, okay? That's not, God ain't do that in you, all right? I gotta just let you know, that's how you responded to that. God ain't have no part in that part, all right? So the refinement process should lead you to blessing and loving others. And so as you search for what God is refining in you and where he wants to refine you, from there, look out into your world. And here's the thing. This don't need to be, I said I wasn't going to talk about it, but I am. Um, this don't need to be like, oh, migrants at the border. Hear me. I've been reading about that for about three years now, and it's heartbreaking. And I know some brothers doing some stuff, and we try to give to that. And he's, I've been invited on a couple of trips, and I'm like, man, this would actually be really cool. Matt, we'll get our church involved. Here's the thing. If I'm worried about migrants at the border, but I, I mistreat my son, I'm still unjust. I'm still unjust. It doesn't need to be migrants at the border or all these other things that you constantly hear talked about on the news. Take your eyes off of everything that's going, off, going on in the world for like 10 seconds and also put those eyes on your own life and in your own family and in your own community for a little bit. You need to think about that as well. God didn't call you to be Superman for everyone in the world. He called you to bring wholeness to where he put you. That's where we want to start. Take care of your mom, take care of your dad, take care of your wife, take care of your husband, take care of your kids, take care of your job, take care of your campus, start there. And if something else cops off from that, man, go for it. But from there, search where God is calling you to protect others. Let's pray and thank God because I'm, uh, I'm running over. And, uh, and then from there, we'll, we'll close up today. Father, thank you so much for <coughs> your fatherhood. Thank you, God, that in the midst of our disappointment and the darkness and the, the sometimes tragedy and, and just sin, the sinfulness that oftentimes just is like in this world, that you don't respond to that by simply being like, man, stop complaining. Or I'm in charge. I got it. But you instead look at us and you respond in compassion and love. Like a loving father, you have stepped in in order to make things right. I read this as a father and I'm overwhelmed by your love for me. that you desire to love me and help me out of the wealth of love to hold me and care for me. You likewise love me too much to leave me where I am. That you want me to be better. You want me to live a beautiful life. You want us to live a beautiful life. Thank you, God, for loving me like that. Thank you. Thank you that I'm not alone. Thank you that every person who's ever lived that has come to you is never alone that we're not walking through life without a model of goodness and righteousness, but that you have loved us and desired to refine us and from there to make justice in the world through us and to bring justice ultimately to the world at the end. And so thank you for your love. Thank you that where we start in our life is the identity that you have willed us to be yours. And thank you that where we end uh, in our life is you declaring that you are God and we are your people. So thank you, Father. I love you. Help us uh, to respond to your love well uh, and, and to embrace your loving care in the various ways that it comes. We love you. We thank you in Jesus' name. 